Hi, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Coach's Corner. I have an interview back for you, and it's a great one. It's been a while since I've had a focused interview on attachment styles, and so I wanted to bring another expert on to talk about them. And this is so timely with our doors for Reconnect, the inner child course opening up because attachment style is such a big part of inner child work. And in this conversation with Jessica, we really speak about how the little me or the little you is so impacted by how we attach, you know, how we attach to our primary caregivers. That impacts how we are as relational beings. And we can't just have awareness and expect it to change. We need to to understand it deeply and to be able to process through it somatically. And that's what Jessica and I talk about in this interview and also what we will help you do, Steph and I will help you do in the Reconnect course. I do hope you can join us. We do have scholarships available. We have payment plans available. I want to make this as accessible for you as we can. And I'm just announcing, I was thinking about I was, I was getting the curriculum all together and feeling into the last module. And I thought, you know, it would really, really make this just a slam dunk in terms of really helping people is giving them a year worth of support. So when you join the Reconnect course, you also get a year of support of monthly coaching calls with me, either me or Steph that are 90 minutes long where you can come and get coached and ask questions. And you receive that until March of 2025. So you get a year of support. And obviously if you can't make it live, you can submit your questions beforehand and you can also watch the replay. So that's another level of support. That's how much we believe in your inner child and how much we believe in this course. And so please come join us, christinehouser.com slash reconnect. The cart closes this week. If you're listening to this a little after the 29th, which is our first call, 29th of February, you can always email support at christinehouser.com and we can get you in and you can catch up with the replays. Let me tell you a little bit more about my guest today. Jessica Baum is a psychotherapist. She's the founder of the Relationship Institute of Palm Beach, providing couples therapy, family counseling, and addiction therapy in South Florida. Her book, Anxiously Attached, helps people understand their attachment style and build an inner strength that will lead them to more secure and satisfying relationships. It's an empowering roadmap for those who struggle with anxiety in their romantic relationships. Before we dive in, I want to thank my sponsor for this week, Organifi. You've heard me talk about them before. I just really love them. You know, I don't know if you're like me, but I really love something sweet and satisfying, but not too sweet. And that's also really good for me. And that's why I love their gold blend. It's a blend of turmeric and lemon balm and reishi and just amazing things for your nervous system and inflammation. You mix it with some hot water. I like to add some coconut cream to it and it satisfies my afternoon cravings without going for like candy or coffee or any of those things that aren't good for my blood sugar and just aren't really good for my health overall. Well, dark chocolate's good for my health and sometimes I will have some dark chocolate with more Organifi Gold, which is amazing. You should have things in your pantry that you look forward to consuming that are also really good for you. So get yourself some gold, throw some green juice and red juice in your cart as well, because that's another way to just get healthy in an easy way. 
add in some immunity and shop around. They've got so much great stuff, protein powders, magnesiums, all kinds of good stuff. So go to Organifi.com slash over it. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com slash over it or use promo code over it at checkout. All right, everyone. And now to my conversation with Jessica. Jessica, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Well, I love some of what we're going to talk about. Who knows what all we're going to talk about. But one of the reasons that we wanted to have you on the show is because you are really an expert on many things, but especially attachment theory. And it's something that we've talked about on the show quite a bit. It's something that we teach in a lot of our workshops. And I think people have, you know, a general understanding of what it is and people might be able to label themselves as anxious or avoidant, whatever. But based on, you know, not a super in-depth knowledge about what is attachment, how does it get formed and how do you identify? So I think I'd like to start just kind of macro here and ask you to explain and define like what is attachment? Sure. So attachment theory was actually discovered in the 1950s and it's very, very well researched and kind of scientifically proven. And so it's really this theory that how we connect to our primary caregivers when we're young. So getting our needs met, the attunement, the presence of our primary caregivers, we develop an inner sense of trust that our needs are going to get met, or we might develop an inner sense that our needs aren't going to get met, or we adapt in certain ways based on our primary caregiver. So there are four different ways in which we can show up. And one is very secure. And those people, they don't struggle with getting too close. They don't have abandonment wounds that are very large. They don't struggle with sharing space as much. They're pretty secure and they have an easier time in love and in intimacy and romantic relationships. And then there's three insecure attachment styles. So anxiously attached is the one that I wrote the book on. These, what I like to say is they have more quote unquote codependent traits, but they tend to lose themselves or self-abandon in relationship because they're able to sense into the parent. So they kind of leave themselves to attune to the person that is outside of them. So later in life, this shows up as someone who can tell what their partner is feeling and is very like sensitive to other people's feelings and basically can self-abandon and have more of those traits. They also really struggle in conflict and they tend to be people pleasers or, or get loud and angry sometimes, you know, because they're scared of abandonment or disconnection. Then there's avoidant attachment and, you know, a true avoidant attachment is someone who grew up with a parent that couldn't attune really well to their emotional needs at all. So they kind of give up on that and they become more focused in left hemisphere things, which is being successful, being more independent, but they're pretty isolated and lonely and they struggle with connecting in relationship. They can also pull away or shut down when they're scared, their nervous system kind of responds in that way. So you have anxious who kind of When they're angry, they run towards to try to get in connection and you have avoidant people who, in order to feel safe, they run away to try to regulate their nervous system. And these two types usually attract each other. And then there's the fearful, scientifically called disorganized attachment. And these are babies who struggle with parents that aren't safe. So they struggle moving towards but they need to, and they struggle moving away because we're dependent when we're that small. So in relationship, they can struggle getting too close to their partner and they can struggle with too much space. So they feel 
very much trapped in, in their body and there's a lot of fear. And so these embodied somatic experiences that we kind of have when we're really, really tiny, they start to imprint our nervous system and how we adapt and how we kind of see the world and they live inside of us so that mm-hmm. when we get older, our attachment system's still there and we're reattaching in romantic relationships. And also this shows up in any deep relationship. And so when fear gets touched or, you know, when something gets activated, we tend to kind of, our nervous system goes into fight flight or different responses. And we kind of have these adaptive strategies based on our attachment style or pattern. Okay. So thank you. That's such an amazing overview. I'd love to unpack a little bit more about when these form, what age is it really formed and can they change? Yeah. So really there's cellular memory at womb and from womb to about four, we don't even have explicit memory. We have implicit, implicit memory, which means we're taking in a lot of sensations and those sensations are very much impacting our nervous system and the quality of our organs. Cause we're not fully developed when we come out. We, we don't have a parasympathetic nervous system. So we come out with a sympathetic nervous system. We're looking to our primary caregivers to self-soothe us. So these attachment nervous system patterns usually start very early and they can happen at any time, but the earlier they are usually the bigger, the sensational memory. So if you're fighting with your boyfriend or your girlfriend and your gut hurts or your heart hurts, or you're having a complete meltdown and your body is on fire in some way, there's a good chance that there's, that is memory. And so usually the people who really struggle with attachment stuff aren't realizing that it's connected to very early sensational memory. And as a culture, we're not taught to think about those things as memory. So we just, we, you know, we try to control our partner's behavior. So attachment wounds can happen at any age, but I would say that this didactic dance of co-regulation and connection with your primary caregiver, your mother, um, that forms like an energetic unit that's very influential influence that influences you, but you also take on your father or anybody else who's close. So you can, you can kind of absorb more than one, um, attachment pattern inside. What's the most important thing for a child to receive from parents, primarily mother for a secure attachment? Presence. You know, my mentor, Bonnie, she just basically talks a lot about you know, for emotional safety, there's a lot of things that we need, but our parent being present in a non-judgmental loving way is sensed by the baby. Are you with me? We are in this together. We are, we are joining the baby very much senses. Oh, I have a person with me. I'm not alone. Even Mm. if there's a rupture or the baby is crying or whatever, it's repaired fast. They have a sense of safety that mom or whomever it is, is connected to me. I know as a mother and for mothers listening, it's like, oh my God, but what about the time I sleep trained my kid? Or what about the time where like, I just was completely overwhelmed and you know couldn't get to them immediately? Or like, what about like, we have a lot of moms at work, you know, that are going, oh no, did I not give my child a secure attachment? I mean, is there any, you know, does this have to be a hundred percent of the time? Like how paint us a picture of like where it can, there's some lack of a better word, flexibility. Yeah. So it's 66% of the time. 
Oh, said it's actually even lower than I thought. Yeah. So 66% of the time we want to be attuning 33% is room for rupture and repair. So we don't need to be perfect parents. We need to be 66% of the time (laughs) on the ball and 33% of the time when we're not perfect parents and the baby gets upset, we're looking to repair. Right. And so that's kind of letting you know that like, you don't want to put that anxiety on you. In fact, the more anxiety that you have to be perfect creates, you know, hovering and probably a misattunement mm-hmm. for your baby. And by the way, if, if you're not attuning well, or you're struggling, there's a good chance you're doing the best you can. And there might be something going on in your internal world that makes it hard for you to be present. And I think so doing your own work or working on your stress levels, or just becoming more self-aware are ways in which you can show up better for your child. It's more about your care. So no, you do not have to be perfect. Um, The statistics are saying 66% of the time, there is a lot of research around that and rupture, like the baby getting upset and you figuring it out and repair is actually a really important part of building trust that it doesn't have to be perfect. My mom is going to eventually figure it out and we're going to repair. Let's break down repair a little bit. Because I think a lot of people have some understanding of that, but not a super in-depth understanding. Can you talk about what repair looks like, especially with someone nonverbal? And then we can move into what does repair look like as we get older? And how do we do repair as parents with our children now, but also in our friendships and romantic relationships with peers and adults? Yeah. I mean, you can't really talk about repair unless you talk about rupture. And so rupture is when there's like misattunement and, you know, when you're crying, you know, when you're upset, when you're not getting your needs met, when there's a little bit of fear. So a baby and an adult can have fears around not getting their needs met, which is connected to the nervous system. So with a baby or a young person, you might be struggling and you might not be able to meet their needs right away, or you might be guessing to what their needs are, you know, and it might take some time and they might cry louder and there might be some you know, feelings of distress, but eventually the baby gets their needs met. And there's a sense of, oh, I am going to get, I can go to a period of stress, but eventually my mom is going to figure it out. I'm still under the assumption. And I'm still learning that even under stress, eventually it's going to get sorted and your system then relaxes. And I think, you know, when you look at romantic relationships or an embodied sense of, you know, ruptured or repair, when we get older, you got a lot of people, especially in the anxious category that don't want to fight at all because they don't like the discomfort that comes with conflict. But if you learn, you know, we can rupture in our intimate relationships, we can have conflict. And part of the repair is empathy and starting to understand that my partner's lens is very different than my lens. And we come back to the table, even though there was co-dysregulation or a rupture, and we start talking about what's going on inside of both of us. And we start to understand each other better we actually deepen our level of intimacy in relationship when we can do that in a healthy way. And a lot of people can't, but that's actually a quality for uh, ever deepening um, intimate relationship with anyone. And Mm -hmm. fighting or conflict is actually, it's as uncomfortable as it is when handled in the way of learning how to repair correctly. it's, It's actually how we build trust in each other and give ourselves more and more permission to be ourselves in relationship. And we learn that the other person really does care about us, that even if we're upset, they're going to come back to the table and they're going to get curious as to what was going on inside of them and inside of me. And we're going to get back to a place of like deeper understanding. Let's go back to, is this malleable? So 
obviously our attachment style is imprinted or formed very young in life. Let's say we had a parent that wasn't really present or inconsistent. We didn't have that secure attachment, zero to three. Then our parents or parent got therapy, shift some things, got sober, you know, for what fill in the blank in terms of what created the change. And then we actually really do have a present, consistent parent. Can that change our attachment style to be more secure once it's imprinted? It's done. So where our brains are always changing and, you know, neuroplasticity and rewiring, if you want to look at it that way, is always happening. If the imprint is there, the re-experience of that imprint with a safe nervous system and a safe parent or teacher or whatever, when you re-experience those fears that come up inside of you and they're received on the other end, that's how we start to work through the old patterns. And then we have relationships that are healthier or maybe more consistent or whatever the missing piece was. And then we start to re-experience in our body a new sense of safety. So absolutely, we're constantly changing and evolving. And I think the more healing you do, the more you might attract people who can show up with you with that loving, non-judgmental presence, the more your attachment patterns might even surface, but the response to them changes. And so we re-experience them differently. And over time, we absolutely create new pathways in our brain. Another way you can look at it is like, if I have a well-worn path from my house to your house, and it's anxiety and it's fear. And I learned that as a little girl, that as I start my healing, that path is still there. We just start to to develop other pathways in our brain. So if on a bad day, I'm really scared, there's a chance I might go to that old path. But on a good day, when I'm less scared, I'm working on new pathways. And those pathways, eventually they become stronger and stronger and stronger. I hope that makes sense. It absolutely does. And I think I've seen that in my own life and in my own work with people for the past two decades of really being able to develop those new pathways and have just a more secure attachment inside themselves and then therefore more secure attachment with other people. So it's it's never too late, which is so reassuring for so many of us who maybe didn't have the best childhood. I want to go to your book, Anxiously Attached. Why did you choose to zone in on the anxious style? You know, I think personally, that's the one I identified with the most. I write, I open my book about, I'm very vulnerable. And I open about this hospital visit that I had when I was 20 and, you know, how I didn't feel my boyfriend loved me at the time. And I actually believe that was the core of the problem, which was so far from, from the core of the problem. And I read Facing Codependency, which is a brilliant book and every single book I could get my hands on. And they were, for the first time, I felt like I had an answer. You know what I'm saying? To like some of my behaviors and, you know, through my studying and I do a lot of intense couples counseling and through my learning of interpersonal neurobiology, that that's been huge. Um, and what I've seen work and my own healing work, I was like, okay, I need to create the book for anxious attachment because the codependency is a confusing word and it's been misused and we're supposed to be very interdependent on each other. And I even had shame attached to that word. And so I was like, this is really all attachment theory. And so I'm going to create the book for anyone who perceives themselves as codependent. And I'm going to put it in the scientific context, but I'm also going to make it layman easy enough for the everyday woman or man to read. And so that's what I did. And I, I was so passionate to 
I think what I was most passionate to talk about is self-abandonment and like this idea that we lose ourselves and how much a baby loses themselves to survive, but how much we lose ourselves in our relationship if we're anxiously attached and what a brilliant adaptive strategy that is when we're babies and how that feels as an adult and just like a pathway to healing. And I also unpack the anxious avoidant dance, which I think now everybody is pretty fascinated with. So I unpack that from, you know, interpersonal neurobiology lens to help people have compassion for both people and start to understand how our nervous systems really at play with these dynamics. Oh, what you said made me teary a certain part of it about how much babies lose themselves. Hmm. Uh, can you expand on that? Because I think that happens to so many people. Yeah, I think that, so connection is our biological imperative. And when we are small, we will do anything to stay in connection. We are constantly adapting to our environment. So if that means, you know, my mother doesn't like the angry part of me, I'm going to suppress that. If my father thinks I should be, you know, more sporty, I might suppress my artistic side. A lot of that happens with emotions. When our parents can't handle certain emotions, we suppress them or we we push them down because we have to, because connection is our primary like need. And it's a, it's an imperative. We, we can't live without it. We will disown and abandon parts of ourselves in order to stay in connection. And guess what? We do that in romance. I, I don't know who doesn't do that. I've done that in so many romantic relationships where I give up parts of myself or I'm self-sacrificing or I'm bending over backwards. And like later I realize like I've lost my voice or I've lost myself or you know, all these things. And it's like, let's look at it from the science lens. Then we can have so much compassion for ourselves and start to understand, oh my God, we're wired to stay in connection. And sometimes that means we will lose parts of ourselves or have all these adaptive strategies just so we can stay and exist. And that's a very early adaptive strategy. And sometimes when we're adults, when we're working through our stuff, we can say, and I can choose to leave this dynamic or I can choose to do this differently, but that's how we get more conscious of these behaviors and where these behaviors are coming from. And again, more compassionate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're in the middle of opening up doors to an inner child workshop that we used to teach over the weekend. And now we're teaching it as a 10 week course. Cause I'm so incredibly passionate about helping people, you know, heal their childhood. And you know, I first became a coach and, and went back and got degrees in psychology and inner child and all these kinds of things, because I just saw so clearly how you can set all the goals you want in life and talk about the present and the future all you want. But unless you really can heal your childhood, have compassion for it, really understand, for lack of a better term, why you are the way you are, moving forward in life can get really, really clunky. Could you speak a little bit to like your perspective on the inner child and how you've done inner child work with yourself or clients and and the value that you see in it, if you do? Sure. I mean, in the book, I refer to that as little me. And um, a lot of, you know, our relationships touch little me parts. And, you know, one of the things that I think I am speaking of that might be slightly different or just not not heard of as much as that little me, that part of you stores sensation. And so when working with younger parts of us, we're not just working on memory, what I can remember my dad or mom to be like, but it's the sensation that's stored in the body and it's the body that it has the wisdom of what we've been through. So a lot of the inner child work that I do is getting into the body and starting to be with these parts with my clients. So like I go into their heart space or I go into their gut 
wherever the fear is, and we start to hold these much younger parts. And they're much more visceral and, you know, somatically charged. And so the more we hold them together, we expand something called our window of tolerance, and we start to incorporate or integrate all of these sensational experiences. And we our capacity to be with our younger experiences and our awareness of like what this actually is deepens our our ability to feel whole and it deepens our ability to welcome these experiences, even though they can be terrifying. And, you know, the more they're met with other nervous systems and people who care, and the more we go to them and we don't say, okay, let's fix it. We say, okay, let's hold it. It's the being with and the unconditional presence of holding these sensational experiences, these implicit memories that start to really heal heal them. So it's, it's yeah. counter, it's like counterintuitive because people are like, I want to fix myself. It's like, oh my God, it's so the opposite of healing. <laughs> healing is yeah. not fixing yourself at all. It's, it's holding all these parts and in the presence and having the vulnerability and the safety to hold it with people who actually are capable of holding these parts with you, because maybe your parents were under too much distress and they couldn't. So that's right. where the re-experiencing happens. Yeah. Yeah. No, we are very on the same train of that. Like all the work we do is so somatic. And so, you know, cause so much of the inner child and everything is stored in the subconscious is stored in the body and the body is the translator, you know, that really helps us know, you know, where we still are frozen inside or still have those 10, that tenderness inside or that trauma inside. So yes, yeah, ne- neck down work has always worked better for me. Obviously we need the mind to be on board and understanding is so helpful. So I think it helps some parts of us feel safe, but really getting into that body is, is so key. You know, for people that aren't like actively in therapy right now, what is something that they could do for themselves somatically to start to create more of that safety um, in their nervous system and safety in their body so that these parts do start to feel more held? Yeah. I mean, it comes down to having safe relationships. And so if it's, it doesn't have to be a therapist or a coach, but it does have to be people in your life that I refer as anchors who are present and aware and care and show up for you. And you can learn to be vulnerable with them. And it's not so easy to find these relationships in our culture. You know, somebody could be listening and be like, I don't know. And, you know, sometimes it's a support group. I know I have one relationship in my life. He's a therapist, but like he's been there. I think it's about finding these anchors because our nervous system needs nervous systems that are able to lend themselves to us when we're scared or when we're in pain. And so the science behind healing is actually that combination And I, you know, I don't want to send the message out there, but healing alone is really hard. And I think, you know, my book helps people because I'm with them as the author, but then I encourage people to take what's coming up in their body and really bring it to a safe, non-judgmental, present person in their life and continue to nurture those relationships or depend on more people who are dependable. And then our nervous system starts to recognize that as normal and we can kind of build from there. I agree. Like you said, we live in an interdependent world. We are interdependent. We have needs of other people. And, you know, I see it so much with my daughter, like her nervous system is co-regulating with mine. Absolutely. Um, When she's upset, like for example, if she hurts herself, I verbally don't reassure her. I hold her close to my body. 
I breathe deeply and I hum very, very deeply. And that calms her (laughs) more than it's okay. You're okay. I got, you know, like it's not the words, it's the sensation. It's like, like meeting the body and meeting the big feelings with this, this regulation. And there's like a tone to it. You know, you can feel it. And I can think to experiences that I've had, even in giving birth, like it was very much a, an individual thing, but having, you know, I had it at home because I really want, I know how much people's nervous systems impact me. And I really wanted to be in a place where I felt safe. And there were people who could like manage their own regulation. And I really trusted the people around me to manage that. And, you know, I'm not a child, so this doesn't, this doesn't stop being a need, you know, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the more work you do on yourself and the more healing you do, the chances are your nervous system might not get as dysregulated in the context of fear. And I remember something recently, I love my mom so much, but I got really scared recently and she got scared with me. And it was a good metaphor for why I have anxious attachment, right? And so she can't help that. So our nervous systems are constantly saying, like telling, telepathically telling each other, you know, danger or safety. And so I think like, it's so beautiful, you know, what you said about your daughter, but like, if you have the capacity to stay in your ventral state, your calm state, and you're humming and you're, you're, you're really breathing deeply, of course, she's going to sense that more than a anxious mom who might be scared and going, calm down, calm down. Cause remember they're just picking up tone. So, but also for the anxious mom, she can't help it. Like if her system Mm -hmm. goes into fear, her system goes into fear. And I think we just have to have so much compassion that like, we're all like literally for the most part doing the best that we can. And Mm -hmm. I think the more awareness we can bring to our nervous system and the more we can bring our nervous system, if we know we have to heal to people who have the capacity to really hold and meet us the more our work will show up and the more we might be able to kind of get to some more inner security inside. Mm. So let's speak to the people for a moment that may label themselves as codependent and really (laughs) identify, identify with that and can see those patterns. Cause I think I'm not super big into labels, but I do think it gives us great context for things and an understanding of things. But I love what you're saying of like, okay, but let's literally really break down like how we end up in these quote unquote codependent relationships and behaviors. Mm-hmm. It is because of like basically our wiring. So I was going to have you talk a little bit about that, but, and also talk directly to the people that do find themselves in those codependent behaviors, maybe are aware that they are more anxiously attached and like, how, what can they do? Like obviously their own healing work, but in the relationship where they feel, they feel it coming up. Like I, I can think of something in the past where I made a choice about something, I was okay with it until I told my choice to the other person. And then, and then I was like, anxiety flare up, (laughs) anxiety flare up, you know? So in those moments where we're okay until the other person is okay, or we're not okay, unless we have reassurance from the other person, what can we do in that discomfort? Yeah. So I'm kind of hearing two questions. So I'm going to try my best. Sorry. So <laughs> hi to everyone who's listening that identifies as codependent. I feel you. And yeah, I think that word is really tricky because I think like we're supposed to be interdependent. So this message that our culture is pushing on us around self-regulation and 
reliance, self-reliance and being independent. First of all, our nervous systems, if we're anxious, can't self-regulate. We literally need another person to co-regulate and that's not our fault or a drink to calm down. Like we don't have the capacity to calm ourselves down. And that's actually, yeah, it's just not our fault until we get that wiring kind of you know, we work through those issues with another person, we cannot self-soothe. So that's a missing developmental link. And there's so much around like codependency and you're overgiving and you're over and so much shame attached to that word. When the truth is we're very um, interdependent beings. The more we can depend on dependable people, the more our fear goes down. It's such a brilliant concept. It's like, if you're really, really struggling, chances are you're with someone who can't really help calm you down, or maybe they're also struggling inside. And so, you know, just being really kind to yourself and starting to look, you know, like I did to, at the science and starting to understand these things in another level, instead of like shaming and labeling yourself. The second mm. part of that question was if you notice your anxious or quote unquote codependent parts show up in your current day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I mean, you, this is what, what do you do with the anxiety? You know, that that urge for because when I think of these codependent patterns, the things that come up are like like anxiety, like feeling anxiety in the body, not doing well with dealing with any kind of uncertainty in the relationship, being triggered when someone else is upset or not happy, or when we don't hear from someone, we don't have that reassurance, we don't have that like connection point. Um, those are the, like some of the common examples I hear over and over again from people that struggle with this. When we're in relationship to anyone who's important, if we have a history of this, it's going to show up. And what most people want to do is fix it. And how do we get rid of this uncomfortability? And how can I make my partner call me back faster or eliminate the stress by controlling something on the outside? And by all means, if someone can adjust their behavior for you for a little little bit, it's going to help, but it doesn't actually hold the wound, right? So when the anxious parts come up, you need to actually understand they're really, really young. And you might have a somatic shape of, I don't know if my needs are going to get met. I don't know if this person's going to call me back. I feel like the the ball is going to drop. And that feeling of hypervigilance or the ball is going to drop is not actually about your current relationship right now. It lives inside your body because it's something you experienced very early on. And it's not that we heal it and make it go away is that we start to develop something called dual awareness. And we start to understand, oh my God, this is actually a younger part of me too. And she was terrified that she weren't going to get her needs met or she wasn't going to, and we start to have some compassion for these experiences that we have. And we can either heal with our partner if they want to become conscious with us and start to talk about it. We certainly can't blame our partner, or we can start to heal by bringing these sensations to someone who can help us hold it. So again, it's never about getting rid of or fixing. It's always about deepening our conscious awareness about holding and starting to understand that this actually has a root to it. And we want to actually hold it at its root and understand it from that Mm. perspective. And that shifts your level of awareness so much that over time, you know, you'll be having a fight with your partner or someone and you'll have something come up and you'll be like, oh my God, that's my little me. She -hmm. must be terrified. And you might not respond or react right in the moment. You might be able to have some ability to have some space there and really understand like how terrified you were when you were small and build some compassion, possibly reach out to some support and kind of work through it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How much do you feel like people that are more anxiously attached struggle with 
expressing themselves authentically. I actually think that anxiously attached people are pretty good at expressing themselves. Avoidant people struggle a lot more in general. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I think that, and it can feel like anxiously attached people are more vulnerable, but they share a lot more. And some of that sharing is actually a response to like other things. So it's complicated and it's layered. And, you know, I'm writing another book right now and, and really we embed more than one attachment pattern and we have Mm -hmm. avoidant protectors and it's so much more complicated than this layer, you know? So, you know, we're also individual, individual in terms of our unique experience. So it's hard to like always give an answer of like anxiously attached people are like this, you know, um, now I lost track of the actual question. I was asking about self-expression. I'll tell you why I'm asking it because I have found that yes, avoidance are harder time being vulnerable, definitely tend more to withdrawal, but maybe don't turn into a chameleon and people pleaser as much as people that are more anxiously attached where, you know, what I've seen Oftentimes, yes, there will be like a lot of emotional expression, but also like such fear of losing a connection that often there isn't that real authentic, like they've learned so much, like how to be who they need to be for another person that there isn't, there's like a disconnection from like, this is who I authentically am. This is what I authentically want. And this is what I authentically have to say. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, when someone with an attachment wound gets activated, you shift into your sympathetic, your sympathetic, your fight, flight, typically anxiously attached people typically go into fight, flight. And so when you're in that mode, you're kind of in a desperate place for reconnection and you'll say anything, you know, you can, Mm -hmm. because you're surviving in that moment. You're trying to get back into connection. You're terrified. So maybe, maybe you say things, maybe you become a people pleaser, but all of that is because you're terrified of disconnection, abandonment and pain that lurks if, if you don't get back into connection. So a lot of that behavior of getting authentic and building intimacy is when we slow down and we be with that Mm -hmm. pain and we start to understand what's underneath it. But we can't do that if we're terrified, if we're terrified, we're going to scramble and say whatever we need to say in hopes to get back the connection that we feel like we're in the midst of losing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is just so helpful. I can't, what's your next book going to be about? My next book is about relationships and mm-hmm. a lot of the same topics, but coming from a completely different lens, more of a nervous system lens. Yeah. I, I, can, I don't know if I can say the name. I, I guess I can. It's called safe coming home to yourself and others. I love and it's an attachment informed guide. And I, you know, I'm, I have the year I'm writing it right now. So I'm like in the, I'm in the, like, <laughs> I'm in the trenches a little yeah. bit with it right now. And you know how it is. It's like a year to write a year to print. So we're looking at yeah. fall of 2020. Five, but I, you know, I'm really um, unpacking a lot of these really scary situations and helping people better understand what's going on inside them. And again, how to heal. It is still attachment informed. So I'm really excited. I'm just, as we speak, I'm, I'm struck. I'm having like writer's block and creativity issues and, you know, I'm, I'm in it right now. So (laughs) yes, we are all still human, no matter how much of an expert we are. Right. Right. (laughs) Absolutely. Human. It's so true. It's so true. Well, I know that, you know, I've been there myself as a writer and you always get to the other side of it. Sometimes you just need to walk away from it all and can come back to it. So as we wrap up, I'd love for, and you've given us so many great, great tools here. But just as a daily practice, 
like coming from being a therapist, really focused on attachment and really knowing how our little me affects us, how our nervous system impacts us, how our family of origin and childhood impacts us. If you could, I know there's one, not one size fits all approach. I totally agree and respect that. But if you could give something that, you know, for a lot of people, like a daily practice or just something they could do more on a regular basis that will help them have more secure attachments, both with themselves and others, what would you suggest? You know, I think that through the secure attachment in there, which only can happen (laughs) with other secure people, but I think we can internalize secure experiences in our life and we can resource them. So Mm -hmm. what I mean by that is if you had a period of time, even with a parent or an aunt or a memory where you had a very nurturing, caring, attuned person in your life, you can close your eyes and you can embody them and resource them and cultivate the felt experience of what it felt like to be around them. I call that inner nurture. And if, if if you internalize them, which you have, whether you're aware of it or not, You can access them at all times and accessing people who care about you inside your body and going there actually cultivates the hormones and the um, chemicals that recreate what it felt like to be near someone dear. So just visualizing or re-experiencing what did it like to have that aunt or that grandparent. I had a grandmother who was so nurturing, right? So Mm. going back to like, and I spend five minutes of my day or two minutes remembering what it like to be in the presence of someone who deeply loved me, then our body starts to remember that and we start to generate more and more of that. So that would be my one really big tip that I don't think is like one of those standard things that you hear. No, I love that. I love that. No, I'm all for reference points. I think reference points can be so, so helpful because we can bring ourselves back to that if we have a really strong anchor and reference point. So I think that's beautiful. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for, you know, I know it sounds like your own life has informed so much of the passion for this work. So I just thank you for um, just being such an inspired and and passionate and well-researched speaker on attachment, because I do think it's something that impacts us so much. And it it really, really uh, is such an integral part to understanding ourselves and understanding how we show up in relationships. So thank you. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. This was such a invigorating and fun conversation. So I'm happy that it's getting out there in the world. And thank you to everyone who has listened to this podcast. No, my pleasure. 